On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about Ontario's debt. Uh, We are talking about the anniversary of JFK's assassination with a local guy who has an interesting series of connections to that assassination, though not in the negative assassination-ish kind of way. Just the afterwards stuff, interesting stuff. And Don Robertson joins us to talk about all kinds of things. Mackenzie Hughes, the Leafs, Hall of Fames. Stick around. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. How much debt? Here's a question for you, all you math people out there and people who have paid attention to what's going on in our province for the last little while. How much debt do you think Ontario's various provincial governments, not just one, it's not just the provincial, they're not just the conservatives, not just the liberals. How much debt do you think Ontario's various provincial governments have accrued over the past 15 years? Take a wild guess. Just turn to the person next to you. And what do you think is our debt over the last 15 years? Ready? $429 billion. That's just Ontario. And now we're going to be spending another $62 billion more than we bring in this year. My first guest wrote this in an opinion piece the other day. Finance Minister Peter Bethlen Falvey announced last week that every sector of government will see spending go up this year. The government hasn't even tried to find savings. Jay Goldberg is the interim Ontario director at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He joins us now. Uh, Jay, always uh, good to talk to you, although I must say you are a giant downer today with this one about about (laughs) how much we're in debt. You are... um, you are, uh, we're supposed to be getting ready for Christmas and you're making us not want to spend any money. Well, certainly the debt news is not great news here in Ontario. We're up over $400 billion. And uh, as many people would know that Ontario is now the most indebted subnational unit in the entire world. Uh, so that's the bad news on the government side, but uh, I certainly won't be here on your show discouraging uh, Christmas gifts. No, no. Well, here's the thing. Now, my math, uh, I've said many times on the show, I was never good at math and I'm still not good at math, but I did this about eight times to try and make sure I got this right. By the end of this year, based on the numbers that you've written here, every Ontarian is going to owe the equivalent of $31,571. And that's before we even start talking about the national debt. That's an astounding number that we are never in a billion years ever going to undo. No, it's an astounding number, and uh, that's just about uh, the same as tuition to send your your kid to uh, undergrad for four years. So that's, you know, just how significant it is uh, in an individual's life. And as you said, of course, the federal debt is even worse. And so if you add the two together, you're looking at well over $50,000, closer to $60,000 a person in debt in this country for everyone here in Ontario. And to your point, and here's where the difficulty comes. Look, we, we know about COVID, and we'll get to that in a second, but it, it doesn't it doesn't seem anyway like anybody in government, and we can point to the Liberals in, in Ottawa and say they are spend-happy, but the Conservatives are running things in Ontario. Nobody seems like they're even trying to make any cuts to this or trying to improve things. It, it doesn't look like there's any incentive or motivation or intention to try and cut back on any spending. No, the progressive conservative government under Doug Ford is actually continuing a trend we've seen for 15 years now. The last time we balanced the budget in Ontario was the year the first iPhone came out. That's uh, 2007. And since then, government spending has ballooned. It's been increasing by an average rate of 8.5% a year, which is an incredible amount, 8.5%. Your revenue can never keep up with that. And so uh, Doug Ford has also been increasing spending on average by 8.5% a year. Now, part of that has been due to responding to the pandemic. But as you mentioned, as I had said in the column, government spending is going up in every sector. So you would imagine that if the government was solely focused on dealing with the pandemic, spending might be up in health care, perhaps long-term care. But spending across every sector of government, whether it's education, uh, social services, the justice sector, every sector of government has gone up significantly. And so that shows you that across the board, the Ford government isn't really looking to find savings anywhere specific. And there's a lot of different places to look. 
Well, look, and you mentioned, and I mentioned COVID. We know that that was an issue. We know that governments have had to spend more than they ever in a million years imagined that they would have to spend. But isn't that the perfect argument for governments to be responsible when things are good to save for a rainy day like that? It seems in our country, in our province, when things are good, that means spend more as opposed to stashing some away so that we're prepared when things go bad. Yeah, absolutely. So I did the math and I went back, as I said before, 2007. If our governments had increased spending only at the rate of inflation and population growth, you know, which is what you might expect as a taxpayer, if they had done that between 2007 and the onset of the pandemic, Ontario would have had no debt whatsoever leading into COVID-19. And then the government would have had a lot more money uh, without having to pay interest payments, which are $13 billion a year, to help deal with the challenges facing uh, with COVID, to help potentially increase spending in health care and long-term care, and position the province to get out of the pandemic. But instead, we're paying $13 billion this year. That's over a billion dollars a month just in debt interest. Uh, and we're running a massive deficit, both to respond to the pandemic, but also to increase spending in areas all across government that uh, really shouldn't be being increased when our numbers are looking so poor. But the, the alternative scenario, if governments had just lived within their means, would have meant a debt-free Ontario before COVID. Well, and, and yeah, and, and that would have been, based on your numbers, 5.4% increase per year. That was the growth. And when you combine that with growth of it, both the economy and the population, I can't fathom that any company or business or household or government could not have said we can live within 5.4% increase per year. That, that, that seems like a pretty generous number, bigger than almost any company would have. It's an extremely generous number. If uh, I were to tell you you're getting a 5.4% raise this year, I highly doubt you and your family would go out and spend an extra 8.5% this year and dig a hole deeper. Um, but that's essentially what the province has been doing every year for the last 15 years. Uh, you know, the, the politicians are being told your your ability to spend is going up by over 5% this year. And somehow they managed to spend even more than that. And in that entire period of time, we haven't really seen any comprehensive tax relief either. So all of this money has just been going to increase government spending. We haven't seen any of it flowing back to taxpayers. So, Jay, here's the problem with all of this. There's a lot of problems, but here's the big problem with all of this. Um, nobody these days seems okay with anything being cut. If you try to take the scissors to anything that government does, people scream and say you're going to kill people and this is horrible and you can't touch this. And so how do you, especially in an election year, how do you possibly start to show any kind of restraint and start to to make any kind of cuts, even targeted, even even well thought out cuts. How do you do it? Well, unfortunately, it seems the political environment uh, has been that there's just a lot of fear mongering when it comes to trying to actually responsibly deal with finances. And every party seems to just be playing into this narrative. And so it makes it difficult. But, you know, I just finished the pre-budget submission that I'm going to give to the, the Ontario government on behalf of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation in the next few weeks. And one thing I did was look at, okay, what would it look like if we just reduced government spending in Ontario back where it was at the beginning of the pandemic? And I said, you know what, let's keep health care spending increases. Let's keep long-term care increases. But if we returned all other ministries, all other parts of government, just back where it was before the pandemic, what would our budget look like? Well, we would save $10.5 billion this year alone. That's how much government spending has gone up just during COVID. And so I think what people need to understand is that even if we begin to talk about restraining government spending and reducing it by a little bit in some circumstances, all we're talking about is going back to where we were before the pandemic. We're not talking about going back to the Mike Harris era. We're not talking about going back to 15, 20 years ago. We're talking about going back to just a little over 18 months ago. And so I think when people start to realize that, they'll think it's a little more reasonable. The other thing is, there's so many areas that we could go after that I think most people could agree upon. We're giving $13 million this year to Ontario's political parties to spend on whatever they want before the next election. That's taxpayer dollars into the pockets of political parties. 
Uh, these are things that we can definitely look at cutting. And I think that, frankly, if the con- progressive conservative government are willing to point out some areas uh, where there should be spending cuts, well, there can be some fear-mongering from other politicians. There are some areas where genuinely I think 80%-plus Ontarians will say, yeah, I really don't think we need to be doing that. Yeah, we got, we got to go. Look, here, here's the big problem as well. I've said big problem a couple times now because it is. Um, clearly, the Liberals haven't shown that they're willing to not spend. And now the Conservatives haven't shown that they're willing to not spend. And we know the NDP would spend. So any government that comes along, any party that comes along now in any election and says, we're going to show fiscal restraint, I, I don't know that any of them have any credibility at this point. I don't know how that comes back into being short of a catastrophe and nobody wants to have a catastrophe uh, on their hands. Uh, Jay Goldberg, wish we had more time. Jay Goldberg, the interim Ontario director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Today is November 22nd, which for those of you old enough or even remotely old enough or in touch enough with history, you know what this means. November 22nd was the day, 1963, that JFK was killed. And that is something that has never gone away. So the interest anyway, I was just reading something online today about someone trying to explain the ongoing fascination with this particular mystery. Here's my prediction. This will never get solved for real. There will never be the smoking gun. And the reason is because there's way too much money in this ongoing story to have a solution. We don't really want a solution. Come on, we don't. It's 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 much more intriguing to have the mystery. There's always it's it's good to have a mystery out there, something we don't know. Anyway, we can talk about that later. But November 22nd, 1963, fascinating story. Uh, ongoing story. My next guest is a guy who decided that he was going to be part of it. And when I say that, not in the way that you would normally be part of an assassination, uh, thank goodness. Um, Years later, he started reaching out to people who were witnesses in some way to some part of that story, seeing if they would get back to him and write him a note or write him something. His name is Mike Tabone. He's a Hamilton guy. He joins us now. Mike, how are you tonight? I'm good. How are you, Scott? I'm fa- I'm fantastic. Thank you for doing this. And I love this story. I've written about this before. I've written about Mike before. We've had him on the show before, but today seemed like a great day just to concentrate on one part of this. And Mike, you have, uh, first of all, I think it's one of the most amazing collections of people. I call them the Forrest Gumps of history. People who have just stumbled into a moment they had no plan on being in. And I want to yeah. go through a bunch of the people from this that you have connected with over the years. And let's start with a guy named Clint Hill. Who is Clint Hill? Well, Clint Hill was there on November 22nd, 1963. He was in the uh, backup Secret Service car uh, when President Kennedy was shot, and um, unfortunately his head uh, took a a hit. Um, Jackie Kennedy, his wife, was trying to collect brain matter from the trunk lid, and Clint Hill ran from his car and jumped on the trunk lid and pushed her back into the back seat of the car, covering her and the president from any future... uh, potential shots, and then the car sped off to uh, Parkland Memorial Hospital, where the president eventually died. So Clint Hill became essentially the most famous Secret Service guy, probably in history, because of his proximity to what had happened and by jumping on the car right then in all the photos. Likely the most famous Secret Service guy ever, yes. Um, Next to him probably would be uh, a man named Timothy McCarthy, who took a hit uh, when he was trying to protect Ronald Reagan back in the 80s. Right, right. Yeah. So you reach out to Clint Hill, you find Clint Hill, and Clint Hill gets back to you. And what did he write to you, roughly? What, what was sort of the gist of what he said? Well, I wrote him twice. The first time I wrote him, um, I just sent him a few photographs. I had just finished reading one of his books. Uh, Mrs. Kennedy and Me was the first book that he published. And I was fascinated by it, so I wrote him a letter and sent him a couple of photos, asking him to sign them, and he did. And then a couple of years later, my granddaughter, Bria, was born. And I thought, you know what, it would be neat to get something from Clint Hill, uh, hopefully a little note that maybe he wrote uh, addressed to her. And I sent him a couple of pictures again. Uh, I sent it back to his house. And he was kind enough to, uh, to handwrite a letter dated November the 30th, 2016, which is about a month after she was born. And he said to her, Dear Bria, welcome to the world. You have so much to look forward to in your future. I look back at my almost 85 years of life and look back at all that has happened since 
with hopes that we learn from the past to better life for everyone. President Kennedy just did just that. He learned from the past to improve things in the future. He was a great man, and then he signed it. Mm. Uh, yeah, so you got Clint Hill connected with this already. Then you, you send a letter to Dr. Robert McClellan. Now, Dr. Robert McClellan was one of the doctors who was in the trauma room when Kennedy was brought in, uh, clearly not savable. But what Dr. McClellan sent back to you, I thought was absolutely stunning. Yeah, Dr. McClellan uh, drew a sketch of what he recalled seeing from his vantage point. He was the closest person to the head wound, um, and he sketched his version of the head wound. And um, his... his, uh, Recollection was so important that he was called to testify uh, with the Warren Commission. Um, to the, till, the, till the day he died, uh, he did not believe that Oswald was the lone gunman because there was always this controversy about an exit wound or an, in, or an entry wound. Um, McClellan's professional opinion said that it was an exit wound, which obviously would have meant that the bullet came from the front, and uh, the CIA uh, said that the bullet came from the back. So that controversy was always there, and likely will always be there. You then write to James Lavelle. James Lavelle, uh, many people will not know his name, but they absolutely know him because when uh, Lee Harvey Oswald was being marched through the police headquarters parking garage, he was handcuffed to a detective wearing a white Stetson, a Texas Ranger. And that was James Lavelle. You write to him and he got back to you. And he did, yes. I wrote to him twice as well, uh, uh, first for myself, and then I wrote back to him for my granddaughter, uh, seeing if he would sign something for her, which he did, and he wrote her a nice short note as well. Um, James Laval, uh, he was a pretty important guy because not only did he find fame uh, a, a bad way, being handcuffed to Lee Harvey Oswald when he was shot and killed, but James Laval was also uh, a victim of the uh, December 7, 1941 bombing of Pearl Harbor. He was in the Navy at the time. And he was actually on board of a ship when the Japanese raided Pearl Harbor. So he's kind of had two brushes with history, which is one of the reasons why I was really, really intrigued and wanted to get uh, something from my collection from him. And you also got the photographer who took that photo, right? The Pulitzer Prize winning photo? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things I enjoy is taking pictures. And and if I see a cool photograph or a picture that has some significant uh, um, value, Pulitzer Prize winner, I, I try to reach out to the photographer as well, and I did. I did. His name was Bob Jackson. I sent him a copy of his photo, uh, asking him to sign it, and he did something for me that he said he's rarely ever done before. He didn't like the quality of the photo I sent him, so he printed one off with his own printer and his own wow. paper uh, and signed it and nice. sent it back to me. Yeah. Uh, we're short on time. I wish we had more, but he, here's one that... Um... I don't even know, like all these other people, if you do just a little bit of digging, you can find their names easily enough because they were on the public record and they were very, very visible. But you got four of the pallbearers who served as Kennedy's pallbearers, right? How in the world did you even find them? I just did some research and some digging. And yeah, you're right. I got, I got four of them. Um, and they all have a different story. Uh, and, and the detail of what they've written is, is truly fascinating. It's, it's so, it's so in-depth. And the way they described that moment in time when they were rehearsing, it just makes you feel like you were part of it. So uh, hopefully someday, <laughs> maybe you'll get a chance to see it, Scott, if you're ever around here again. Uh, but I think you'd be really fascinated if you could read some of the letters that these guys mm. wrote. Uh, many of these people are now gone. Uh, yeah. Dr. Robert McClellan is gone. Dr. Kenneth Sayer, I believe, Sailor, I believe, who you also got, who was also yep. a, tra- a trauma. He's gone. Um, James Lavelle is gone. Who is there anybody that you wrote to in relation and connection with this that you didn't get a response from? Um, I don't think there was. I think every single person I reached out to with respect to this topic did respond. Um, I don't think there was one at all. No, there wasn't. See, I've got one for you now as a challenge, which I know you're never going to get, but that's why it's a challenge. Marina Oswald is still alive. It's funny Lee you Harvey say Oswald's that. Oswald's wife. It's, a, it's funny you should say that because... Just the other day, she's she's a uh, porter now. Just the other day, I found her her address in Florida, and I have her on my list to to write her a letter. Actually, apparently, she has for decades now refused to speak about this. Did one interview maybe fifteen or twenty years ago, yeah. but if you can get this one, that would yeah. be the all time score. But yeah, um, I, I I don't think I'll have success, but it's definitely worth the uh, 
the value of a bit of time and a couple of postage stamps. That's what do they say? If you don't ask, you don't get. No one's ever going to say yes if you don't at least ask. So who knows? Who knows? Right on. Uh, Mike Tabone, a Hamilton guy, a wonderful story. I mean, unbelievable collection. Uh, One of these days, Mike, you're going to have to put it into a show somewhere, an art gallery or somewhere, because everybody would want to see this. Um, Really appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this as always. Okay, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me bring in Donald Robertson, owner and operator of ComChoice Realty of the Dundas Real McCoys, who will be back on the ice eventually, we hope. Uh, And Dundas is Citizen of the Year for the year 2021. At least that's the plan and the movement that that we are inspiring here. Don, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, just, um, you know, we're, um, the Christmas decorations got up and, you know, it starts to feel like Christmas a little bit, which uh, I'm not usually a before December the 1st Christmas guy, but, you know, all this time at home, it's, it's like, okay, I can live with this. I'm okay with this now. Yeah, I, I hear if you want a tree, you better get it. There's going to be a shortage of them. We, uh, we assemble our tree. We're not, we're not, we're not that good to go out and get ours. We used to, we used to, and then, uh, my wife and I, the very first year we were married, waited till the last minute, and the only tree we could find at the end looked like a Charlie Brown tree. the The back half was entirely without needles, the and the front half was barely hanging on. And we said, "You know what, Don? I think we'll we'll um we'll just get the plastic one from now on. It saves us a lot of a lot of headache." Well, one thing about going last minute, it doesn't take long to pick one. Hmm. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It's are just, you are uh, is you, we're a, we're a real tree. Yeah. Is it up? And no. I'm a kind of a December guy, but we did have the chat Saturday that maybe we'll go get it now. And all you have to do is leave them outside. Suze was concerned that, you know, if, if you get them too early, well, the interesting thing is the ones, unless you're going to cut it down and I'm not that ambitious, I'll buy one somebody's already cut. Um, they cut them around uh, the end of October anyway. It's only when you bring them in the house that they, uh, when they warm up and everything, if you leave them outside, they're going to be fine. We may buy one, leave it outside and I'll bring it in when I'm told. But see, you've got lots of trees on your part. They don't have to be necessarily Christmas trees. You could put up a, you know, a different kind of tree, a completely non-Christmas tree shaped tree. If you had to just chop one down, just have a maple. I could do that. (laughs) And then I, I bring it in and then I, yeah, with no leaves. (laughs) <laughs> and then I would probably be sat down, had a talking to, and then I'd go get a treat. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. Uh, you know, this I, may be I've the year because this may be the year because you're saying you're right. There, apparently, there's a shortage, so this may be the year for the Christmas maple for some people. <laughs> well, I, I got one beside the uh, propane tank that's going to have to come down sometime because it's getting a little big. And this may be the year that I just lop it off about two feet off the ground and now they'll work. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And you know what happens then is you'll forget one night when it's dark and Sue sends you out to do something and you'll run into the stump right at the perfect height. Oh yeah. No, that's exactly about the height it would have to come off too. And that's probably what I would do. Yeah. Maybe that's not a good idea. I'm not that handy. I'm not sure. I'm not sure me chopping a tree down is the best use of my skill. No. Because well, you can always hook it up with a chain to your trees. truck. Yeah, just hook it by a chain to yeah. your truck and do the Chevy Chase thing from Christmas Vacation. Just yank it out by the roots. Yeah, we could do that, and I'd likely upend the uh, propane tank that roll down the hill. <laughs> that wouldn't cause any problems. No. Yeah. <laughs> if anyone sees giant fireball over yeah. the outskirts of Hamilton over the next few days, you know Don's cutting down his tree. <laughs> oh, man, that, would, that, that would be it. That would be it. And uh, you'd want to film it, too, because it would be a sight for sure. Oh, boy. So, uh, Don, a friend of yours, um, back in the news again this weekend, I got to tell you, um, Mackenzie Hughes, local golfer, for those who don't know who he is, local golfer from Dundas playing on the PGA tour. Uh, he's won a tournament, which I think is probably, it's great because obviously you want to win a tournament, but Don, he finished second for the fourth time in the last four years. I got to think that if McKenzie had never won a tournament before, this would be absolutely chewing him up at this point. The fact that he's got one tells him he can do it. I think it probably eases it a little bit, but coming close that many times, if you'd never done it, boy, I think that would just chew you alive. 
Well, I, yeah, I agree. And, and sometimes I think it will depend on how you come second, right? I mean, if you come second after heading into Sunday up by four shots, that's kind of um, running into that tree stump you talked about. But <laughs> yeah. Mac, Mac yesterday was eight under. And he is not notoriously at his very best on Sundays, U.S. Open, gets a ball caught in a tree. You know what I mean? But this Sunday, I mean, he was stellar, and he was opening the Thursday, too. He was like 61, and yesterday he was 62, and um, Saturday he was even. So, you know, I think just inherently you look back and say, all I needed was a couple putts somewhere, and everybody does it. But, yeah, I think if he hadn't have won, he'd be pretty frustrated. Now, uh, to draw a comparison, um Phil Mickelson was second at majors like 10 times. I don't, I don't know the exact number, but like just way too often before he won a major. So when you're Phil Mickelson coming second at majors is kind of like Matt coming second at this stage of his career in a regular season event, mm. but the second place finish. And then he was in Japan, I believe in another tournament where he finished well. And the good news for him is he ended up ranked 39th in the world, which gets him into the Masters, the U.S. Open, and all the major events. So the second-place finish was huge. Well, and it doesn't just do that for him. And, you know, not to be too um, cold, hard, cash-centered here, but um, la- this weekend's work, uh, he won $784,800. That's, that's not shabby either. No, that's got to put him like at a million and a half um, on this season, which has now changed a bit. I mean, they used to play till kind of this time of the year, and that would be the end of the season. But with the FedEx Cup on the PGA Tour, the championship is like October, and they maybe September. Um, and then they start uh, the next season in the fall. And uh, Mac, if you follow his career – has always seemingly played better in the fall than he has at any other time of the year. And uh, hopefully he shakes that off because he's off to a tremendous start. Well, he is. And, you know, one of the funny things, so I'm writing something for tomorrow in the paper about this. And, you know, uh, maybe it was just how I was brought up. I don't know. But I I was always taught it's really not polite. It's really not the thing to do to talk to people about money and how much money they make. But it's different when you're talking about golf and with golfers because everything they make is public. It's all out in the open. It's not like you're prying into someone's life to try and say, Hey Don, how much did you make on that home sale? I mean, it's not, it's not the same thing. And so I look at it kind of differently, but I tell you what, even talking to Mac about it, I, I still feel almost a little awkward, even though, as I say, it's all out there. It's a weird thing to talk, to, to talk to people about how much money they make. Well, traditionally, I mean, I have no idea how much you make. I'm, I'm sure both jobs are uh, seven figures, but... Um, yeah, two of them are after the decimal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is a bit odd, but you're right. What it's public and look at sports guys. It's funny. When you talk about, I don't know what Max at, probably somewhere around a million and a half, I guess now with that win. Um, but... When you look at golfers, they have to earn it on their own. Mitch Marner is going to make $10 million if the Leafs don't win another game this year. So it seems team sports, where everybody publicly knows what you make, you can sure get reps pretty hard if you're not playing well. In golf, if you're not playing well, you're just not making any money. And uh, I don't mind a sport like that, right? You're kind of rewarded, rewarded for your success today. Like if Mac had a huge year, nothing's guaranteed next year. Nothing's guaranteed in the new year. Now, the higher up you go, I imagine your sponsorships opportunities are greater. And I'm sure the higher you place in uh, some of your tournaments and the more TV time you get, probably you get more money from sponsors. Um, Oddly enough, when you get guys like Nicholson and Tagger Woods who get bumps, you know, for winning tournaments from sponsors, those are the kind of guys that are almost the last guys in the world that need more money. 
But to a guy like Mac, if he makes an extra quarter of a million dollars on sponsorship a year, then that's kind of a tidy little profit. Phil Mickelson well, the other th- another quarter of a million a year, who cares? Not yeah, that's him, beer- that's wine money for him. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the other funny thing about it, and I say it's, it's, it, it feels awkward when you talk to people about their money, but golf, like tennis, like boxing, like a few others, money is the, isn't just how much you're making money is the, um, it it reflects how you're doing. And, and so if you talk to somebody about having made a lot of money, it speaks to the fact that they're doing really well at their job. It's not just, as you say, that you've negotiated well. Uh, you know, if you talk to a golfer, it's almost more embarrassing. I think probably if you were going to talk to a golfer about money, if you said how much you made this year, you only made $50,000, which sounds more normal, but it would be embarrassing to the golfer. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. And, um, I, I think at this stage, I mean, obviously making a lot of money is important to Mac, uh, because, you know, that's what he's trying to do. He, golf's fun, but it's more fun when you're making a lot of money. Um, but the 39th in the world really helps because it puts them in a better position. But oddly enough, the higher ranked you are, which means now he gets into all the premium tournaments, right? But when you get into all the premium tournaments, that means, guess what? You're playing against all the best golfers in the world far more often. And you can say, well, that, that, you know, that'll, that'll give a guy more incentive and give him a better opportunity to compete with the very best. Well, sometimes if you don't have to compete against the very best and you end up first or second, that's kind of rewarding too. I think I'd rather, I would, if I'm him, I'd like to win that tournament yesterday and, and take whatever cash they get rather than have somebody say, you did really well. You were eighth at the U S open. Yeah. But you don't make any money doing that. So you see what I mean? It's a kind of a, catch 22 he'll play in all the big tournaments and all you gotta do is win one mike Weir's still dining out on his masters and well he should but if mac can like he was in the last group in the u.s open um this summer can you imagine if he'd have won that it changes his life his life's yep. fine now win the u.s open win a masters now you're writing your ticket for the rest of your life well you don't even have to play golf again I mean, you, you, you do, you want to, I mean, Mike Weir still has played golf, but Mike Weir is not the golfer he was, but Mike Weir shows up at most tournaments, especially in Canada. Mike Weir is a very, very, very big deal. Mike Weir can still do endorsements around here. Mike Weir can still, you know, I, I'm sure that there haven't been many meals that Mike Weir has paid for in Canada since 2003. Yeah, no, no, no. It's an excellent point. You're right. And he's a household name as is George Knutson, who when I was younger, was one of the few guys even on the tour and Dave Barr. And, like, they weren't winning. They weren't doing as well as Mackenzie Hughes and you know, Max doing very well, uh, Corey Connors. You know, we've got some guys. We have a lot of guys on the PGA Tour compared to, you know, 30 years ago. So yep. it's, yep. it's uh, as a country, we're doing better. Look at the soccer team. Look at the tennis, uh, men and women. I mean, it's. I think we've purified our water and it's helping. Mm. Well, we got to, we got to take a quick break here, but I'll say this. I, I don't know because of who is, because of how golf is right now. And there's a few guys that are such big names. I'm not sure Mackenzie is getting as much around here acclaim. I, I think people know who he is for sure, but he's not yet one of those folks that people talk about week after week publicly on the shows and everything else. And I think that buries him a little bit in the eyes of the public, but I, I, which, which leads me to say that I don't know that he's getting the, um, the sense around here, around his hometown of how well he's really doing, but it's pretty remarkable what he, what he's been able to do. He's, he's doing what very few have ever done in Canada, let alone in Dundas Hamilton, you're right. It's he. He needs more. Going to the Dundas Sports Hall of Fame is going to help. It's coming up. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That will that, that'll turn. I mean, it's great. I'm not laughing at that, but um, he deserves to be in there for sure. Glad he's doing it, and you know, having a a course at his own course named after him is great, and lots of other things too. Just one of these times, one of those second places is going to turn into a first, and then uh, win that second tournament and 
maybe people will talk. Uh, Don, the Toronto Maple Leafs, you're a hockey guy. The Toronto Maple Leafs have won, I think, 10 of their last 12. And more to the point, many of the games that they've won have been very un-Toronto Maple Leaf-like lately, where it's not just run and gun, where they have been very defensively responsible. Are you buying what these brand of Leafs are selling, or is this just a blip? I mean, yeah, but they're on the right track, and they have been um, found guilty in the playoffs when they've been able to make them. And the last, probably the last time they won around, which was about 20 years ago, they did this. They played well defensively, and that's that's always been a criticism um, of the recent uh, Toronto Maple Leafs is they don't know how to play in the playoffs, and not knowing how to play in the playoffs or play effectively in the playoffs is generally directly linked to defensive play. So if Sheldon Keith is doing um, this by design, and there's no evidence he's not, he's saying we have to learn how to win like this. And the most important thing is not having three guys in the top ten in scoring. The most important thing is having goals against average because we're always going to be good enough to get two or three goals. And if they can... And they're getting outstanding goaltending. It's like um, Johnny Bauer's back. I mean, their their goalers are um, just playing out of their mind, and Jack Campbell may may well play for the U.S. Olympic team. Well, and look, every single coach in hockey history, pretty much, who's been great has always had a great goalie. I mean, show me the great coach who's had a great year or won a cup or whatever else who's had a sieve for a goalie. It just doesn't exist. So, you know, that that clearly is helping the cause. Unquestionably it is. I, you know, I, it almost 12 games, 12 games to me is almost enough of a stretch to say it's more than a, it's more than a blip that they've started to learn something, that they've started to make a habit of this. I I just wonder though, Don, when you get into, you're going to, because the Leafs have enough talent, they're going to get into a few games where they put up six goals or seven goals and everyone's having a good old time because everybody loves to score. And you wonder if that drags you out of your habits because now you're, you're having such a good time just skating around and doing whatever you want. You just wonder how set in stone these are. Smart coaches will tell you, um, you'll get, the harder you work defensively, the more scoring opportunities you're going to get. And I believe that to be a fact because if you're working hard defensively, you're going to have the other teams having to try and make some plays that really aren't there, some more difficult plays because they get frustrated. And then you poke a, you know, you poke something loose because they've made a mistake and away you go on a two on one. One thing that, that, that you didn't bring up that they, and I do believe they're creating, I haven't seen the analytics on it because I don't read analytics, but, um, I'm sure they're getting far more scoring opportunities than one would think based on the goal production. I think they're not finishing as well as they have in the past. And I'll tell you, because I've seen them dominate and because they're playing well defensively, they're getting those scoring opportunities. And when they start burying those things and they got enough skill to bury a bunch of them, they're going to start blowing teams out if they keep playing this way. But remember they lost like five of six just before they got on this roll and they look like the Toronto Marlies. I agree. And that's, that's why I'm, you know, I'm not yet, I'm not yet ready to declare that they're going to be the team that figures this out. I, you know, it would be wonderful, be lovely around here for all the Leaf fans, but I just, Maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, once bitten, twice shy. I don't know what the third time is and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time, what the state saying would be, but you just expect that something is going to go wrong. And, and maybe Don, maybe that's the real legacy of what the Leafs have been for the last 20 years that they have created around here a belief. I mean, an ardent, hardcore belief in those people who watch them day in and day out that doesn't matter how good things are going, something bad is looming just around the corner. So just hang in long enough and it'll go wrong. Well, I think so. And, and, and you know, it's taken them 50 years to earn that, Scott. This isn't a fluke. It's not like they've had high expectations the last couple of years and haven't delivered, which they have. They've had high expectations for 35 of the last 
50 years that they haven't been able to win, right? It's not quite 50. No, it is 50. Yeah, it is 50. 50 plus. Um, but you know what? Everybody just says, do something in the playoffs and we'll believe you. Think back to the, the was it a 4-1 lead in game seven? They blew against Boston. I mean, that was kind of crippling. Then they're up three games to one against the Habs last year and can't find a way to win one. That's, you know, it's, they've worked at uh, creating tremendous amounts of doubt in their fans and their fans are entitled to say, show me. Okay. You're doing great. You're playing great hockey. It's defensive hockey. You're playing playoff hockey in, uh, in November, but it's, it's not playoff time yet. So do it then. So they're, They've earned all the skepticism that all the fans have for them, that's for sure. Yeah, and the one thing that's different is that it does seem that they are winning the right way now, or at least with the playoff style, the style you need in the playoffs, as opposed to just outscoring everybody and where everyone is saying, yeah, but this isn't going to hold up in the playoffs. They, They are playing and winning in a way that I think should give their fans some vestige of hope that maybe something is different. As I say, I just, I, I just don't, I'm not convinced yet that it can hold, that they can stick with this and not get drawn into the other stuff, but who knows, who knows? Maybe that's just a negative pessimistic viewpoint. Well, again, they, they've, uh, they've been trying to ingrain you with that for a number of years. So everybody's entitled the, the interesting thing about the way they're playing now on a very consistent basis they're playing very tight hockey. They're playing very strong defensive hockey. And they're winning. So that's a lot easier for the coach to go in and say, boys, remember November. You know, we've got a little loose here. We're still winning 6-5. That's no way for us to win. Let's go back to November. And so he could draw on that and show tremendous success for them paying the price and working hard. So he had, he's never been able to draw on that, at least Sheldon Keith hasn't, since he's been the coach. Yeah, and maybe, and we got to go, maybe the one thing that Sheldon Keith has going for him now is that these players, that this particular group has been so humiliated enough times that they will listen to you have to do something different as opposed to thinking that they can still do it the way they want to do it. Maybe, maybe the, the, the recent years of absolute humiliations will finally resonate in a way that gets them to stick with this. We, we will see. We will see. Don, the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame ballot is out, which is going to allow people to uh, decide on some interesting some interesting players. And I don't want to ask you, I'm going to leave out all the, all the folks that are for this discussion that are really on the fringes, because the interesting part about this hall of fame ballot, it seems is the ones, the guys that you would say are as close to sure things as possible come with complicated legacies. And we're not even talking about, you know, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are still waiting and Kurt Schilling is still out there. Um, let me just list, I will list some of the names who are on here. Uh, Carl Crawford, Prince Fielder, Ryan Howard, Tim Lincecum, Justin Morneau, Joe Nathan, Jonathan Papelbon, Jake Peavy, AJ Prezinski, Jimmy Rollins, Mark Teixeira. I don't know that any of them would be considered a Hall of Famer. However, two names that are on here are David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez. A-Rod, we know, had drug steroid performance-enhancing issues. And David Ortiz, while it kind of got played down a lot, his name showed up in the Mitchell report. He apparently allegedly had a positive PED test back in uh, 2003, but that was um, that was a long time ago and before Major League Baseball had testing. What do you do with guys? What do you do? with guys who are, I think by almost all accounts have hall of fame credentials like bonds, like Clemens, like Schilling, but they are complicated. Their stories are complicated either by cheating or by something else or by allegations of cheating. What do you do with them? Well, it depends on how you look at it. And if, and how do you look at it? Well, I kind of look at it. As, it's like when I was learning to be a linesman, and a instructor said to me, it's like being pregnant. You either are or you aren't. So if you want to use that rationale, that if you use performing enhancing and drugs uh, 
to better yourself and your career, you're not welcome in the Hall of Fame. Now, there's all kinds of evidence that a lot of the voters believe that with Bonds and Clemens. So how do you say uh, Big Pappy was a good guy? He admitted it. So we're going to give him a pass. You know what I mean? Like it's everybody will tell you, um, whether it's political or politics or anything else, if you screw up, get ahead of the story and start apologizing before they turn the microphones on. Because there's a lot better chance it'll find a quiet exit if you admit it, apologize, do a mea culpa, do whatever you have to do. And it seems that some of the guys that did that admitted it. Um, people are more forgiving and want to give them a pass. I don't see the difference. If you if you don't want cheaters in your Hall of Fame, you can't pick and choose what cheaters you're going to let in the Hall of Fame. And if uh, yeah. Roger Clements was not all that friendly to a bunch of the people that get the votes, then you got to hold your nose and vote for him if you're going to let some of the other guys in. But I think you're going to see a double standard. I just think if... If that's the bar and that's the standard, then you're out. Well, and you're right about the fact that if you if if you're arguing against Bonds and against Clemens, which is I believe impossible to do on performance only. I mean, you you can only be leaving them out because of what you believe they did off the field. There's no possible way those guys are not Hall of Famers based on just their numbers and based on what they did. So you're, you're saying, I believe they cheated. Therefore I'm not putting them in. You can't possibly then vote for a rod, but Ortiz becomes this weird thing, not only because he's a designated hitter for most of his career, which we're not even going to talk about that part, whether or not a DH should be in the hall of fame. But if he was linked, if there were rumors, if there was an idea, if his name showed up in that report, is that enough to say, I don't believe him, therefore I shouldn't vote for him? Well, again, back to my point, you either have that standard or you don't. Pete Rose um, should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. He's been suspended because he bet against on baseball. And you're not allowed to bet on baseball. The fact that he never bet against the team he was managing or playing for to win, I get thinking, well, if you're ever going to give a pass, that's where it is. He's not getting one. He might go in after he passes away, but he's not going in as long as he's breathing, I don't think. So they've set that standard hard and fast. And if you're going to, again, if you're going to use it against Bonds and you're going to use it against Clemens, then you got to use it against everybody because you can't be a little bit pregnant. So from where I sit, if that's the standard, they can't get in. You can't vote them in. Doesn't mean they won't. But we all know Jack Morris, who was not friendly to the media when he was a pitcher, you know, he, a lot of people didn't like him. That stuff matters, sadly. It shouldn't. It should be just ability. But. Yeah, you know, baseball for, for this one year, for, uh, and I don't, I don't know who's on the 2023 because we're talking about the 2022 ballot. I don't know who's up for the 2023 ballot, but for this one year, they may have a terrific out here, which is that there's a new committee that's come on to look at past oversights specifically because major the, the Hall of Fame traditionally has elected people who played in the major leagues. And many of the players from the Negro Leagues, once upon a time, have not been included in that. So there's this new committee that's going back and looking at that. So you can have someone like Buck O'Neill, who could be posthumously inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. You could still have an induction. You could still do a Hall of Fame thing, and there's more than just him, and bring in a bunch of these guys from other leagues this year and not have to deal with this other stuff if you really wanted to. Um, and again, I don't know, I don't know if you then get past this. I don't know if you're ever going to get past this, Don, or or if I I think probably I'm being naive even by saying this, and these guys are going to be lingering around forever. This, this group of guys, they're always going to be around, even after their term expires of of being eligible, then they're on the veterans opportunity. I I don't think that it's ever going to go away. What? Yeah. Pardon me. I... I don't know how you make it go away because I don't know what changes. But then again, 
Hall of Fames are funny. I mean, they create a lot of conversation. We talk about it, you know, a fair amount, probably proportionally. But it's guys that get passed over and then get in right on their last year of eligibility or they're not, they don't go in the first five years. What makes them so much better five years later? They haven't played a game since. That's always part of the argument I have. Yep, Larry, well, Larry Walker. Walker's, his name escaped me, but he's the one. It was his last year of eligibility, and he hasn't had a good season for ten years. I think your answer, the answer to your question, right? yeah, but I think the answer to your question about what changes, whatever, I, I think it'll be voters. I, I, I think that there are the people. This is the irony of this: the people who watched these guys, the Bonds, the Clemens, the A Rods, who watched these guys and know what they saw seem unlikely or un unwilling unforgiving un they're not the ones who are pushing them to get into the hall of fame i think though that 10 years from now when you have a younger group that didn't necessarily watch and that may not have the same feeling about this that those guys will get in whether it's veterans committee or what they'll eventually get in because a new group of people with different standards perhaps or different scruples will say why are they not there how, how about this standard, Scott? It's it just come to mind. There's a lot of writers and broadcasters that they vote, right? That's who's determining a lot of this. Would it be un, unfair to suggest that, and, and you know, the, the sporting uh, media has changed a lot in the last 20 years, but anybody that ever actually drank before or during a game they were reporting on would become ineligible to have a vote? Do you think that would change the makeup of the people that are voting? <laughs> oh, you mean the voters, not the players? Uh, uh, the yeah, well, um, Harry Carey, who's long gone, but Harry Carey would never be able to cast a vote, I'll tell you that. Uh, <laughs> the, the bases are loaded and so am I. But you know what I mean? Like, so I find it a little bit ironic that some of the people that are casting judgment on whether or not they had performance enhancing and drugs, and that's why they were better, I wonder, wonder if they would have been quite as efficient if they hadn't had a couple of shots before they wrote their story. Mm. I mean, it's just, there's a bit of irony there. I mean, I don't suspect since you're in that. Is that what I should be doing? Out, but, Is that, uh, maybe you got, um, I, we got to go. Is that what I should be doing? Maybe I should do that more. Maybe before I write, I should have a few shots. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't do that, but who knows if those are the legends, maybe that's what I should be trying. Well, some of them were legendary and you've heard the stories. Uh, well, they were legendary for a variety of reasons, but, um, you know what, before the career is over, maybe we'll try that. Although I, uh, I don't think it'll be any time soon to, to get all, the career. to get all liquored up and then, uh, and then try and writing something. It would be interesting. <laughs> don't, don't plan on doing it anytime soon. Uh, Don Robertson, um, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this on a Monday evening. Really appreciate it. All right. Uh, Scott, look forward to next week. Have a good week. Thank you. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.